Welcome to The Landscape, your podcast about Western public lands and politics and sometimes climate change. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. And I'm Kate Gretzinger in Salt Lake City, Utah. It's Thursday morning, 11 a.m. Mountain Time. We were all set for an episode this morning with Lena Moffitt from Evergreen Action, all about executive action. And then this deal in Congress comes together late last night. Um, So we're going to sort of reset and talk about some of um, what we know about what's in this legislation that may or may not pass. Um, Aaron, what is sort of the top line here? Will you just sort of break down um, the top lines from this deal that Manchin and Schumer reached last night? Sure. Obviously, this is a great deal in terms of investments in climate change across the board, not just stuff that we we focus on here at the Center for Western Priorities in terms of public lands. But there are huge investments across the, the whole country. But I, I want to dig into the public lands stuff because it is big. Uh, and there's a whole lot of great stuff, and there's also some pretty bad stuff that we need to talk about. Um, but I, th- I think the big picture, the top line, is that a lot of what's in here is stuff that CWP has been working on for its entire existence as an organization. I- I've been here for seven years, and the stuff that we saw show up in this bill text last night is stuff that we have been advocating for for my entire time with CWP. So it is not time to pop any champagne, certainly, but it is a big deal seeing this stuff in bill text that appears, at least as of 11 a.m. Thursday morning, to be on its way towards passage. Okay, well, let's go through some of the changes um, to public lands oil and gas leasing, because that's that's something that we focus on here at CWP. So the bill raises royalty rates for onshore drilling. Um, it also raises the minimum bids to $10 an acre, up from $2. It raises rental rates for leases um, from $3 to $5, and then $15 if oil companies don't start drilling on their leases. Um, it adds a $5 per acre fee for expressing interest in federal land leasing. That is a huge deal because up until now, companies can just, or it literally anyone can just go online and nominate any public lands they want to be auctioned off for oil and gas leasing. Um, now the interior department has some discretion there. They don't have to offer all of that up, but, um, it's great that industry will actually have to pay for, you know, the time and effort it takes the interior department to process all of those nominations. Um, the bill also eliminates non-competitive leasing, which is essentially what happens when, um, yeah, huge deal. It's what happens when, um, leases don't sell at auction, then, um, oil and gas companies can just go pick them up for like $2 an acre. Um, in actually, I think it's $1 and 50 cents, um, in BLM offices, um, without any competition. So instead of that, anything that doesn't sell, the BLM will just, um, auction off at a future date, apparently. Okay, this bill also includes bonding reform. Um, That's something we've been hammering on for a while. It raises those rates up a huge amount, almost like a 10 times increase, up to $150,000 for an individual lease, $500,000 for a blanket lease um, for all of the wells a company might have in one state, or $2 million um, nationwide. So those blanket bonds are already exist, and right now they're they're way lower. They're like maybe $50,000, I think, or something for a statewide blanket um, in that 
now will be 500,000 if this passes. Um, the bill also adds a royalty on all methane that's extracted from public lands, and that includes methane that's vented and flared. So that's methane that's not even sold. Um, it looks like companies will actually start to have to pay for wasting that methane. And the bill also includes some significant funding to clean up abandoned oil and gas wells, otherwise known as orphan wells, as well as funding for methane mitigation and monitoring um, at well sites. So, I mean... Those are all great things, but there are some bad things too, right, Aaron? Yeah, and, and I think if this bill had just stopped everything you just listed, we would be doing absolute cartwheels this morning. But politics being what they are, it does appear that uh, the cost of getting Joe Manchin onto this was uh, two steps forward, one step back uh, in terms of oil and gas leasing. So uh, first off, it reinstates the offshore lease sale from last November that had been contested and thrown out in the courts uh, because it didn't sufficiently sufficiently take into account uh, the climate impacts. This bill is just going to say, nope, that lease sale, uh, it, it counts and it's law and uh, an interior has to issue those leases. And then it will require more offshore lease sales going back to the Obama-era leasing plan from, from January 2017, including requiring uh, another offshore lease sale by September 2023. That's all pretty bad. The biggest concern, for from my perspective as a public lands advocate, uh, I, obviously the offshore folks who work on that are going to be really, you know, really rightfully angry about, about reinstating offshore leases and sales. But onshore, uh, it this bill basically ties renewable energy development to ongoing oil and gas lease sales, both onshore and offshore. So onshore, what the bill says that in order for the interior secretary to allow any rights of way, new permitting on renewable energy projects, the secretary also has to hold uh, lease sales for oil and gas. And it actually removes a whole lot of the discretion that the secretary has right now. That is something we'll hear about in this conversation with Lena about uh, how much land to offer uh, for those lease sales. And what this bill says is that the secretary has to offer at least half of what companies nominate. Now, keep in mind, they have to pay for these nominations now. So that that's not nothing. Um, and that's, that's the bare minimum of half of what they uh, want up to at least 2 million acres. Uh, so if they nominate more than, say, 4 million acres, 2 million acres becomes the new floor for a lease sale. That is not great uh, in terms of locking in future drilling. Um, and also the, the bill uh, does nothing to, to limit future lease sales in the Arctic, which is, of course, another, another big problem. So those parts of this bill are exceptionally problematic. I don't think we know right now how all of the good stuff and the bad stuff is going to interact because as you mentioned kate making oil and gas companies pay five dollars an acre just to nominate a parcel that is a massive change that may significantly uh, reduce the amount of of wild speculation that goes on nominating and and snapping up leases that probably will go nowhere because there's uh, there's very little potential for for drilling. But until we see this in action, we really don't know 
Right, right. I mean, just for context or to put this in perspective, um, to get to that 4 million acres you were talking about earlier, which would require that 2 million, excuse me, 2 million acre lease sale, um, that would cost $20 million um, to nominate at the new $5 per acre level, which, you know, $20 million is definitely doable for oil companies. It's yeah. it's not out of the realm of possibility, but it's it's more than $0. Yeah, it, it, it's it's not nothing, but it's, yeah. But when they're making billions and billions of dollars per quarter right now, uh, $20 million does seem like a, a bit of pocket change, obviously. Yeah, it's it may not hold them back that much. Um, so, okay, we should touch on the fact that this bill is not a done deal. In fact, it's going to be passed through the re- reconciliation process. And we've seen some signs already today um, on Twitter that the GOP may, may be making plans to sort of tank it. Um, Aaron, do you want to walk through what, what could happen? It, it It is a bill. It is not a normal bill that passes through the normal process. It's, it's passed through what's called reconciliation, which is a, a Senate parliamentary thing that basically says the Senate does not need a 60-vote supermajority, which it normally needs, uh, in order to pass a budget reconciliation bill. And that's where they're fitting this in so they don't have to blow up the filibuster. Um, And because of that, there is going to be some sort of sidecar deal with a separate bill on permitting and streamlining permitting for both renewable energy projects and oil and gas drilling. We haven't seen anything. Hold on. Yeah. They're not passing that sidecar bill because of reconciliation, right? They're passing it because they had to get Joe Manchin to the table. Is that is that right? Correct. That, that was apparently Joe Manchin's price of admission is, all right, I will come on board on this, but we're going to need to pass a pass permitting reform. And you can't attach permitting reform to a budget bill because that's not a budget thing. So in order to follow the Senate's rules, there's going to have to be a separate bill on permitting. And that is quite honestly fraught with danger because we don't know what's going to be in that bill. It could be okay. I mean, obviously there's an advantage to to more efficient permitting of renewable energy projects, but you also don't want to hand the keys over to the oil and gas industry for speeding up permitting on, on oil and gas drilling. So, you know, we just don't know what that is going to look like right now. Um, and we're already seeing... Senator Kevin Kramer, Republican from North Dakota, throwing a lot of cold water on the idea that any members of the GOP will be on board for permitting reform, even though that is something they ostensibly support, because they simply don't want to give the Democrats the political win of passing real climate legislation, which is what the reconciliation bill is. So I think that is the first reason nothing guaranteed here. And, you know, we don't know that this thing is going to pass. Um, and then the second wild card, of course, is Kirsten Cinema. Who knows what she will do? It does not sound like she was at the table for any of this, and her office is being, uh, I guess, characteristically squirrely over whether Senator Cinema will will be on board with this deal. Right, right. They said something about waiting to see what the parliamentarian comes out with, and. Um, as you explained to me this morning, that's the parliamentarian um, who some people may know as sort of the referee of, of Congress has an outsized role here because it is reconciliation. So it has to sort of be budget related measures that are going through in this package. 
so a lot of a lot of unknowns um, here still, even though a lot of folks are celebrating this like it's a done deal. Yeah, not not a done deal by any stretch, and so that that is why I think this conversation that we recorded on Monday with Lena Moffat under the assumption that there was no deal at all is still exceptionally relevant. Number one, because we don't know that this thing is going to actually make it to, to the finish line. And number two, even if it does, there is still a whole lot in the president's toolbox that he will need to do in order to reach our climate goals separate from this reconciliation bill. Right. Great. Well, let's hop into that conversation. Our guest this week is a longtime environmental and climate advocate. Lena Moffat is the chief of staff at Evergreen Action. Before that, she's worked at the Sierra Club, National Wildlife Federation, and the Union of Concerned Scientists, where she was instrumental in helping draft the last major climate legislation to come through Congress, the Waxman-Markey Bill in 2009. And I'm sure we will touch on that and what went right and wrong there. Lena, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. So this is my favorite sort of interview because I'm a policy nerd and we get to take a really opaque or complicated topic and try to make it a little more accessible to someone who is just out for a walk or a drive. So let's start with the basics. Everyone's talking about President Biden taking executive action on climate. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse is calling for executive beast mode, which is, I, I love that turn of phrase, but the phrase executive action, it potentially covers a lot of ground. So before we get into specifically what the president could do, can you just walk us through the kinds of tools that he has, the different categories from rulemakings to executive orders to emergency declarations? Yeah, well, I'm so glad you've asked and thanks everybody for joining. There is a lot that the president can do with executive authority and that comes in handy right now because these are actions that he can take without any help from Congress. And I know there are a lot of climate advocates out there right now feeling really down and a lot of Americans seeing the increasing impacts of the climate crisis. You know, we've got almost hundreds of millions of people suffering from extreme heat this weekend alone in the United States. And we need to take action. And luckily, the president of the United States has a lot of authority granted to him, and he must go forth and use that authority right now. It is the time for waiting is over. The time for speeches is over. It is time to act. So what does that action look like? He can do a whole suite of things from, like you mentioned, issuing regulations on the power sector, which I know we'll get into because there was a very exciting Supreme Court decision that just happened on that front. He can take action to regulate emissions from tailpipes, from vehicles, but he can do creative things like setting standards for buildings and setting standards for heavy industry. He can say no to fossil fuel permits. We all know that if we're going to actually tackle the crisis like we need to, we've got to stop adding fuel to the fire. So doing things like slowing down or saying no to LNG exports and ending offshore leasing, all fully within the power of the president to, to do, and he doesn't need any help from Congress. 
So let's walk through the different types of actions you just mentioned, starting with declaring a climate emergency. Um, we heard a lot about this and uh, Climate Envoy John Kerry said it's coming. It's just a matter of when. Um, but I think there are a lot of questions around what that means. I don't think we've never seen anything like this before. So what would that allow Biden to do um, if he was to to announce this emergency? Yeah, I have to say, as a as a longtime climate advocate, climate activist my whole life, I was really excited to hear that. You know, it is time that the president of the United States starts treating the climate crisis like the emergency that it is. And so I am really hopeful that he will issue this climate emergency declaration for a number of reasons. Uh, and I actually think the symbolism of it is incredibly important. The, the U.S. government, the, the president of the United States, the most powerful position on the planet saying, yes, this is an emergency. That sends a critical signal to the rest of the world even without anything else attached to it. That is important. But the most important thing is what he does with those powers afterwards. So declaring a climate emergency would unleash a few executive powers that he doesn't have if he doesn't declare that emergency. So there are a number of laws that require that declaration of an emergency like the Stafford Act, the National Emergency Act that would give him the authority to do things like end oil exports, for instance, or move more quickly to require companies to manufacture clean energy domestically. Uh, some things that would be really helpful in tackling the climate crisis. But I think even more importantly than that is a recognition that by declaring a climate emergency, the president really needs to take to heart that he use all of the authorities he has. And there are, like we've talked about, a lot of them that the administration has even without declaring an emergency that he's not using right now, that he needs to go further on. So while I really hope he declares a climate emergency, I think it will be really exciting and very galvanizing for the base and send a really important signal he also needs to make sure that he follows up with all these detailed actions that he can do in addition to that emergency declaration. So the, the declaration sets the stage, but the in terms of the actual where the rubber hits the road, you it's good old fashioned executive orders to, to kick things off. And that is actually not something you need an emergency declaration for. Right. There is so much that he and his vast government agency staff can do right now that they need to be doing and need to go further and faster on, even short of a climate emergency declaration. Absolutely. So, so what are those sorts of things at the, the executive order, the EO level? Sure. Well, it's a, it's a mix. We want him to go beyond executive orders because executive orders send, again, send a really important signal, but it's getting even more into the meat of executive agency action, like mm. regulations that are critically important. So we've put those into five big buckets at Evergreen Action that um, he needs to do all of, frankly, because again, this is such a crisis. He needs to treat it as such. So first and foremost, Evergreen Action leads on the power sector. We know that if we are going to decarbonize our entire economy, getting fossil fuels and carbon emitting sources of power out of 
the power sector is foundational. Because as we then go to electrify all of these other most emitting sectors, we want to be doing so with clean electrons, so to speak. So let's make sure that we are powering our grid with clean power, first and foremost. And there's a lot that he can do on that front there. And that includes directly regulating carbon from power plants. So even though the Supreme Court did take a whack at the EPA's authority under the Clean Air Act and did limit the exact kinds of tools that they can use to regulate carbon from power plants, they did not take away that authority altogether. And actually, EPA retained and is required by law to use that authority now to say, power plants, you've got to start ratcheting down your carbon emissions, and they can do so and set really strict limits on power plants to make sure that polluting sources are starting to clean up their act. And then additionally, EPA has a whole suite of authorities under the Clean Air Act to promulgate uh, public health rules. So we know that power plants are an incredibly large source of all kinds of pollutants. And EPA needs to move forward with these public health standards that do things like setting the national ambient air quality standard for ozone. They need to update that and they need to do it quickly and require large sources of these pollutants to start cleaning up their act. And that will not only save lives by decreasing dangerous pollutants that communities, particularly communities of color, are burdened with every day and are breathing in every day as we speak right now. It will also help level the playing field for clean power to come online because by requiring dirty sources to clean up their act, it makes it more of an even fight, so to speak, for clean power to come online. Changes the economics there. Exactly. And, you know, it, it, as companies are looking at investments and it's a transition that's largely already underway. We know that clean power is increasingly clean sources of energy are increasingly the most cost effective sources. The power sector is really transitioning already, but it will just help drive those investments more effectively. If polluting sources are required to think about how to clean up their pollution on the front end rather than on the back end and on the backs of communities, again, particularly communities of color. And then second, I just want to mention the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission is a unique agency. It's independent from the president's authority, but it has a critical role to play by particularly helping ensure that we are building the transmission lines that we need. This is a largely overlooked area, I think, of climate advocacy because FERC is so wonky and it's hard to access and it's mostly companies engaging there, but I really do think climate advocates need to pay more attention there. They've got a key rulemaking open and they need to hear from the public how to reform our transmission, aka grid, to make sure that it's cheaper and easier for clean energy to come online. That's a key rulemaking that needs to happen. But in addition to those wonkier rulemakings from agencies like EPA and from FERC, there are a whole suite of things that the president can do. Just want to touch on a few more of them quickly. Taking on fossil fuels directly can and should do that. Like we talked about, say no to permits for big projects like the Willow Project in Alaska, largest oil and gas project proposed on public lands right now. Like, absolutely, we should not be building massive polluting facilities in delicate places like the Arctic to bring more fossil fuels out of the ground while our planet is burning. That should be a no-brainer. No way. And there's a comment period open on that one right now, too. Department of Interior needs to hear from you. Do not permit the Willow Project. But then other things like offshore leasing in the Gulf. That's another one. The president has full authority to say, 
no more offshore leasing. And he needs to do that in the next phase of what's known as a five-year plan where his agency outlines which offshore waters are going to be open to offshore leasing. None of them should be. And and that is and that and that you can do under the under OCLA, under the law right now. You don't need to change, repeal that law that is possible to do anything. You don't even need to phase it out. It doesn't need to be slow stepped under the Outer Continental Shelf Leasing Act. OSCLA, I think it is. They have the authority, as they reiterated when they issued the proposal, to just say no more new leasing. And that is in line with the president's commitments and is in line with his climate goals and environmental justice goals. And that's what he's got to do. And then there are other regs on transportation, buildings, industry that he absolutely should be moving forward with those agencies and a suite of things that they can do through financial regulators too. The Securities and Exchange Commission has a rule that they're considering right now to start giving investors the information they need about how to make climate smart investments. All of these things uh, are fully within his purview as the executive and and he needs to move those forward. So you've got a whole lot potentially in process and how do you is this just a matter of the white house needing to tell the agencies get this stuff done in some respects yes i mean having lived in dc for 15 years definitely recognizing that everything is political and it is on us as a movement to insist that this administration prioritizes climate action and in some ways, um, it's it it's a silver lining right now that we are in this place where the movement is pretty aligned, and we know we need to push this administration. We all need to use our voices right now to engage and say yes, prioritize this. And not only will that help reduce emissions and help shave degrees off of a warming planet and save lives, but it's also politically expedient. You know, the the administration is looking for ways to galvanize their base. Hey, young people, communities of color, key constituencies that they need to get jazz before November want to see him take action like this. And we need to reinforce that to them. that This is in their interest for so many reasons. So let's talk rulemakings because we touched on a bunch of these that are potentially in the works. We have not yet talked about onshore leasing and permitting. And there are some differences there in terms of what is possible versus what is uh, likely when you look at the various, the different laws, the Offshore Continental Shelf Act versus the Mineral Leasing Act, which is a hundred plus years old and has this somewhat tricky language that says the interior secretary shall hold quarterly lease sales. We have been at at the Center for Western Priorities pushing Interior to get going with a rulemaking to overhaul that system. From from Evergreen's perspective, what needs to happen there at the Interior Department level? Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that. I, I come from New Mexico and I grew up going to band camp in the mountains uh, north of Albuquerque, the, the Jemez Mountains, um, which are now riddled with oil and gas rigs. And I take very personally the need to ramp down oil and gas extraction on our public lands. And they can do it onshore as well. And thank you to you all for for your leadership on this front. 
I was so happy to partner with another of our uh, partner organizations, Earth Justice, on a paper recently outlining exactly how they can do that. Phasing down onshore leasing um, by using a number of tools at their disposal. The administration can withdraw the number of parcels that are offered up for leasing, for instance, in any particular um, leasing opportunity. And totally agree with you. They need to issue a rulemaking that outlines exactly how they are going to take the administration's various priorities and authorities into consideration as they overhaul the uh, federal fossil fuel leasing process because it is woefully outdated and very antiquated and isn't serving the best interests of the American public. And FLIPMA is an interesting law in that it tries to balance multiple uses, so to speak, and multiple constituencies as it comes to our public lands. And it does say our public lands need to be managed in the interest of the public and thinking about future generations and in a way that doesn't prevent uh, positive uses of our lands down the line. And the climate crisis and oil and gas drilling on our lands absolutely are doing that. And the industry has been locking up our lands in a way that really is only serving their bottom line and their interests and really needs to be re-examined by our decision makers. And I'm, I'm very hopeful that DOI will do that with the leadership of Secretary Holland, who has been a, a longtime advocate for making these decisions in a way that, that really balances all those interests and isn't so slanted towards industry as it has been for too long. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. There's a good report out from Center for American Progress about how um, BLM prioritizes oil and gas, even on lands that have low potential for oil and gas and high potential for renewable energy. Um, so it just seems so outdated. And it's just um, almost like ironic and funny at this point <laughs> that they're they're still prioritizing oil and gas, even while they're saying they prioritize renewables. Um, so Lena, question for you. How can Biden make some of these things permanent and um, or what what actions that we've talked about today are um, more permanent and can't just be overturned um, as soon as a new president comes into office? Well, you know, I we all wanted legislation for many reasons. Um, legislation is harder to overturn, but so are regulations. You know, that that is fully within the power of the executive. And yet, under our laws, a future administration would have to show why overturning a regulation wasn't, uh, um, what is the right word, wasn't just the, a whim. They have to follow certain procedures and prudence in governing, uh, you know, the United States. And we saw this with the Trump administration. They came in and they tried to overturn all of the previous administration's regulations, and they only succeeded on a handful of them. Because they weren't very good at the end of the day at what they were trying to do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. They moved. They were very sloppy. Let's yeah. say that. Yes. Um, and there is a way that ex regulators can design regulations and safeguards in a way that really thinks about how to encompass all of the considerations and constituencies that they need to take into consideration as responsible 
governors, so to speak, and will provide for longevity, hopefully, of those regulations. And, you know, I think there is a lot of value in advocates pushing the administration to use that regulatory pathway because of that, because there can be a lot of fortitude in those regulatory actions. So just to spell out the alphabet soup here, because you mentioned FLIPMA, the Federal Land Policy Management Act, Mineral Leasing Act, and then on top of that, the Administrative Procedures Act, the APA, which goes into whether all of this stuff actually sticks and can become part of how these agencies work and add on to that Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act. National Environmental Policy Act. We got a whole lot of... (laughs) Yeah. So the, the challenge is you have to craft these things in a way that takes into account all of these various laws and how they interact and then do it in a way that is going to hold up to the inevitable court challenges, which will, of course, come. Yes. 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 And that's one of the reasons I was so excited to partner with Earth Justice, the sort of legal brain trust of the environmental movement on that paper, in that they are thinking about how these regulations can be crafted in a way that is durable. Again, because the public interest needs these regulations and needs the administration to be representing all constituencies and not just industry, which again has been all too well represented at the federal table, and protect that public interest in a way that lasts. And and we think that that is definitely possible, but the more that you get the public engaged and you have that constituency of the public and public interest represented, the more likely it is that the executive is going to favor those interests as they craft these regulations. So that's all to say, send in your comments, make your calls to these agencies because it does have a difference. It does make a difference. It has an impact. Lena, we touched on the politics um, around all of these actions earlier, but I want to bring up gas prices because they've been, you know, just drowning out all of the good work we're trying to do. Um, and what are your, what's your thinking around that, especially in terms of like oil, ending oil exports? How does that um, sort of, how do gas prices affect the ability to take these actions? Well, uh, I mean, it's, it's such a frustrating situation in that high gas prices is... <laughs> such a reminder of why it's important to get off of fossil fuels altogether. You know, if this administration or Congress or Joe Manchin really wanted to protect the American consumer from the volatility of fossil fuels, not to mention the pollution and international crises that come with a dependence on fossil fuels, what they would do is double down on getting us off of fossil fuels as fast as possible. You know, because people who have electric vehicles they're not they're not affected yeah right right when you get away from having to pay that price at the pump that's real energy independence that actually gives you the freedom to not be subject to the whims of opec um so all of it in in many ways is just a ruse for continuing to perpetuate the status quo and line the pockets of fossil fuel industry ceos and is truly unfortunate and is why we are pushing the administration to use this as the platform that it could be for such an opportunity to lead a leadership moment to say, actually, 
This is all the more reason why we need to double down on climate leadership and supercharge the transition to clean energy because I want to protect the American consumer. Because I want farmers in Montana to be able to fill up their diesel, their tractors with something besides diesel for $7 a gallon. I want them to be able to plug them in and not have to pay for that fuel at all in many ways. And yet we recognize that the political landscape that we have right now, yeah, it makes it challenging. But that's, again, all the more reason why advocates who are engaged at this level and recognize the peril of the climate crisis need to push and say, this is in the interest of consumers. And these investments that we are pushing you to make and the changes that we're pushing you to make are in the interest of the American consumer. All the more reason to do it now. I want to go back and ask about Evergreen Action, because I think this is an organization that a lot of folks listening here may not be as familiar with. Uh, How did Evergreen Action come about? And you're now on the climate scene here, obviously making a big impact, but uh, walk us through the origin story. Oh, well, thank you so much for asking. Yeah, I came to Evergreen a little over a year ago from about a decade at the Sierra Club. And as you mentioned, I've done a tour through most of the big environmental groups in in D.C. I'm so excited to be at Evergreen because I do think we've sort of burst onto the scene in a way that is is making a difference. Thank you for noting that. And we came from Jay Inslee's uh, presidential campaign that was really based around climate. And the reason that I wanted to come to Evergreen was that I was inspired by Inslee and the way that he really made climate change and the need to combat the crisis, the center point of his presidential bid. And Evergreen Action was founded by a handful of Jay Inslee's presidential campaign staff, um, his policy staff and his communications staff, who wrote his Inslee Climate Action Plan, which we like to think was the, the gold standard for presidential climate platforms. And my bosses found themselves busier the day after Jay Inslee's presidential campaign ended than the day before, because all the other campaigns were calling them up and saying, hey, we want, we want the details of your climate policy. And how did, you, how did you write this piece? And what do you think about that piece? And help me integrate this into my platform. So that went from Warren to Harris to eventually Biden. And the, the Inslee climate plan made its way into a lot of what the Biden campaign and then administration turned into their climate commitments. Uh, and I was I was really stoked to see Evergreen carrying forward that that North Star of Inslee old climate policy that sets the bar as high as it needs to be, because we have to take on this crisis at the magnitude that it warrants, but is also doable. You know, we have to make a difference now. We have to use the tools that are at our disposal right now and make sure that we are shaving every degree that we possibly can off of that curve because every fraction of a degree matters. It, it will mean lives saved. Um, and Evergreen is a tiny little group, about 20 people punching above our weight. And we, we craft those bold, actionable policies and follow them up with campaign style communications work and advocacy work and darting in and leveraging relationships with the movement. And uh, we hope pushing the climate movement to go bolder and faster and get the administration to do so as well. Last question before we go. I know we've been talking about evergreen action because Joe Manchin is going to Joe Manchin every chance he gets. But do you have any hope for Congress? Could we see something in a lame duck session? Or is it all all Biden from here on out? Well, you know, I think we could. And I think the name of the game on climate advocacy and advocacy in general is to never give up. You know, I cut my teeth working on the Waxman-Markey bill and we lost that vote 
by probably 15 to 20 votes in the Senate. And a decade later, we have a bigger and stronger movement. We do. And we came up one vote short. But we have made progress. The fact is the American public is seeing the impact of the climate crisis. More and more people are engaged to demand action on the climate crisis. And even though we didn't get that big, bold reconciliation bill through in the way that we wanted it to, we were really close. We were one vote short. And I so hope that the climate movement can weather this and that we can see that the real lesson here is that we need more power. We need more people engaged. We need more senators recognizing that this is an issue that they have to take seriously. Not less. We don't, we can't afford people giving up at this moment. And I would just say, look around, look at your neighbors. There is so much goodness and good intention in this world where people really are trying to make a better life for themselves and for their neighbors and for their kids. And that is what we need more of. That is what the movement needs to lean into is treating each other with the respect and value that we need and demanding that from our elected officials. And we've got to keep trying and we are very close. We're gonna get there. We just have to keep pushing. We have to get a few more senators in office who believe so as well. All right. This was a much more optimistic episode than I thought we were going to get when we started recording. So I want to leave it there before we get depressed again. <laughs> Lena Moffat is the chief of staff at Evergreen Action. We have a link to their recommendations for what the president can do by executive action. You will find that in the show notes. Lena, thank, thank you so much. You. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Kate. It's such a pleasure talking with you. I appreciate it. You know, one other thing in light of the reconciliation bill coming back to life and the prospect of being uh, passed with real climate measures, even if that bill becomes law, even if all the good stuff happens, there is still going to be a need for major rulemakings at the Interior Department because it will be responsible for implementing all of the provisions in the law that we talked about at the top of the show. So stay tuned on all of this. Uh, in terms of the bill, in terms of rulemakings, uh, things just got really interesting. All right, here's some good news from the past week. The Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee heard a long slate of public lands bills on Friday. The bills were a mixed bag, but a handful of good conservation bills passed out of the committee, including a bill to expand Berryessa Snow Mountain National Monument in California by almost 4,000 acres, which passed with unanimous support. The committee also advanced the nomination of Laura Daniel Davis to be the Assistant Secretary of Land and Mineral Management at the Bureau of Land Management. The position oversees oil and gas leasing on public lands, which is critically important in the fight against climate change. But that means there is no one to fill the deputy position that is under her on the Interior Department org chart. Since the committee voted 10-10 on Daniel Davis, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer will need to bring up her nomination for a vote in the full Senate and hopefully give Interior Secretary Holland a full team so they can get going on executive beast mode. That is all for today, folks. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, if you didn't, Feel free to drop us a note, podcast at westernpriorities.org. Please, you know, let us know what you enjoy. Let us know what we could do better. You can find Kate and I both on Twitter as well. And if you want to look at Evergreen Action's list of climate executive action recommendations, we will link to that in the show notes. 
Thanks so much to Lena for joining us and for her great work on climate action. And thank you for listening to The Landscape. 